Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Joining us is Tom Jawitz, Vice President of Immigration Policy at the Center for American Progress, along with Erickson Immigration Group's Managing Attorney, Justin Parsons, and Senior Attorney, Mina Raffi. Together, the group breaks down the midterm elections and how it may shape a more sensible approach to immigration policy. Additionally, Tom gives us an in-depth look into the current situation with the caravan migration and provides the underlying philosophy behind the White House's actions. And lastly, birthright citizenship. Prepare not to be surprised. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us beyond borders. Hi, Tom. Hey, guys. Hey. Thank you yeah, for thanks. joining the call today. Thanks for doing this. Sure. So I guess the first question that we have for you, and maybe there isn't much to discuss here, with the election, you know, and, and the uh, the Democrats taking control of the House on Tuesday, how does this impact any sort of immigration or immigration bills going forward? Um, I think the outcome of the election on Tuesday, and obviously it's still unfolding, and there are really positive signs coming out in the Arizona Senate race, uh, everything happening in Florida as well. Um, I mean, in, order, in some ways, in order to answer the question of sort of how do you feel about the election, I feel like it's helpful to take a step back and think about how you would feel about the election if Democrats had not taken the House. Yep. Um, I, I almost can't even imagine getting out of bed the next morning. Um, if you think about the amount of uh, popular resistance to this administration's policies um, that began literally the day after Inauguration Day um, and all that's gone into the fight since then, um, if that had come up short and the elections not only were viewed as vindication by the president, but, but in many real ways, tangible ways, were vindication, um, I think we'd be in an extremely dark place. Um, on immigration specifically, um, having control of the House is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, having control of the House means that uh, a number of bad immigration policies uh, that the administration uh, might have been able to, to, to put into law, most often through the appropriations process, but uh, potentially also through legislation or through budget reconciliation or something else um, will be much less likely to take place. Um, it provides an opportunity for House Democrats to begin to chart a course toward what sensible immigration policy should look like in this country, and that can help uh, shape a conversation going into 2020 uh, in the elections. And the, the power of the gavel uh, not only to determine what goes to the, the floor, but also uh, who each of the chairpersons are for committees, um, is incredibly powerful. I mean, just again, like, since it's like a nerds podcast, I mean, a very basic point you can make is that when you are the chairperson for a committee, your committee staff uh, gets twice the amount of funds to, to, to operate as the minority. And so you're going to see all these committees, like on House Judiciary, the Immigration Subcommittee is going to go from two councils to four councils. Um, they're going to have more members. They're going to get to decide what the hearings are. They're going to get to set the agenda for the hearings. Uh, of the four witnesses testifying in the hearings, they will select three. The minority will select one. Um, all of that means basically you're going to have real and meaningful oversight that's being done, um, and it's going to be able to help shape the conversation for uh, how we're discussing and thinking about immigration uh, nationally over the next two years. Tom, I had a question. We've been told that there have been a number of well-known think tanks, including Center for American Progress, who advise Democrats to avoid discussing immigration during the elections and always sort of pivot towards health care. Um, do you think that sort of help or hurt the 
discussion moving forward in terms of immigration reform because what has happened is we've essentially allowed Republicans or hardline Republicans to define the parameters of immigration in general. Do you think it's a much more uphill climb now having Democrats come in to try to sort of redefine uh, what immigration reform is going to look like? So uh, specifically on the memo, I'll say, um, I mean, basically what, what, what that reporting was all about is that um, uh, over a period of months, the Center for American Progress Action Fund, which is our C4, worked with Third Way to do some really extensive uh, focus groups and then really polling um, in battleground uh, districts, battleground congressional districts and uh, places where there were senatorial or gubernatorial races to see not on the general issue of immigration, but to specifically see uh, what impact uh, the really ugly uh, sanctuary MS-13, um, I mean, the stuff that was, was you know, basically President Trump's closing argument with, with his vile racist ad, um, what impact that has on voters and where it is harmful, how you can effectively neutralize and respond to um, those ads. And... Yeah, you know, we found a few things, I think, which were not, uh, I think, fully or accurately reflected in, in some of the small bit of journalism that came out around the, the polling. One thing we found is that in some districts, those ads uh, can pack a very powerful punch initially. They really can sort of freak people out, to, for lack of a better term. Um, the second thing we found, which we were very clear with folks about, is that you can actually respond very effectively to those ads. Um, they're not ads you should ignore for the most part. They're ads that you can respond to. And, you know, the things you should say in response are first and foremost that, you know, absolutely this country needs to solve uh, our immigration challenges, um, you know, and playing politics with the issue and scaring people is only making it harder for us to reach those sensible solutions. We need to have immigration reform uh, that can, you know, provide greater border security, certainly, um, but also that provides you know, pop uh, 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 path citizenship for millions of undocumented immigrants who are living in the country today. You know, that has to be consistent with a general theme of restoring the rule of law in our broken immigration system. Um, we also found that those attack ads, while they were effective with, with many people, were very ineffective with uh, African-American voters and very ineffective with college-educated white voters. Um, Frankly, that's something then that when you and, and I'd say you know several campaigns that actually use some of the message framing that came out of that research um, ended up doing quite well um, in the race in the races. Um, we also saw though that in many places uh, those ugly attack ads that weren't just being run by President Trump but by many many candidates throughout the country on the Republican side um, backfired tremendously and they actually helped to alienate uh, white suburban college educated voters who. In many cases, women who saw the divisiveness and saw the ugliness and realized that that was actually not going to get us anywhere closer to a solution. Um, and you actually just today see in a political article Kevin McCarthy essentially admitting that 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 uh, may have actually made it much harder for them to uh, keep their losses uh, in control in the House. Now, in terms of like you know, so 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 that's that's one thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is because we were looking at targeted battleground races, we certainly were not trying to provide general advice to the Democratic uh, Party or the Democratic Caucus more generally. And obviously, we see a lot of uh, members who were running uh, on very strong, powerful, progressive, pro-immigrant agendas. Um, and I think that's in keeping with our country's heritage and and, and values, and, and that's something that we absolutely applaud. Um, so, I mean, I would say one thing that I think should frame what this Democratic-controlled House should be thinking
thinking about going into this Congress um, is first and foremost to take quick action to pass the DREAM Act uh, and provide permanent protection for people with temporary protected status who stand to lose those protections um, if and when uh, the preliminary injunction that the courts have issued um, uh, is, is reversed. Um, and, you know, that can be done, I think, in the first 100 days. There's strong uh, support throughout the entire caucus for, for those pieces of legislation. Uh, there has historically been, even in this current Congress, some bipartisan support uh, for each of those uh, pieces of legislation. Um, there obviously was a major organizing effort around DREAM in particular in this current Congress. Um, I think the House should pass that, uh, pass the legislation. It, it, all signs point to uh, the possibility that the Supreme Court will take up the DACA case um, and potentially issue a decision in June of next year. Um, I don't know whether the TPS case uh, cases will move as quickly to the Supreme Court, um, but all of the protections in place right now that allow these individuals to uh, retain their work authorization and ability to remain in the country are tenuous. And so that not only provides a lesson for the importance of going forward with renewals, renewal applications, but it also says that Congress can't, can't wait. I mean, House Democrats should pass this stuff and get it over into the Senate so that we can focus on making sure that Senator McConnell uh, and his caucus uh, feel the pressure they need to feel, um, particularly at the right moment, to take action on it. So just in terms of passing a, a DACA bill or any sort of TPS, so a lot of the folks who listen to our podcast are um, you know, highly skilled workers who are on H-1Bs, who are on L's, TNs, et cetera. Uh, a lot of folks who work at um, you know, tech companies on the West Coast. Are you able to shed any light in terms of predictions for any sort of highly skilled um, bills that, that may be tucked into those proposals? One of the bills that our folks are, are pretty keen on is H.R. 392, which eliminates the, the per country cap quota. Um, so I don't know if you want to, if you have any insight on that that you could kind of tell people about. Well, I don't know if I have any insight. I mean, I will say that, uh, you know, I worked before I was at CAP, I worked for Congresswoman Lofgren, um, who has long uh, co-championed H.R. 3 and 2 and uh, the Fairness Bill. Um, you know, I find it, I, I don't know whether or not there's going to be any chance in which that legislation moves as part of the end of the year spending bill. I know there's obviously been some, some energy around that uh, through Immigration Voice um, and others. Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't expect, I think, that the bill that the House passes um, uh, would, would, would go beyond the confines of, you know, the Dream TPS legislation. It, it, it's quite possible. I mean, there, the number of folks, obviously, the co-sponsors on that bill are, are through the roof. Um, but I think that sort of there's a, there's a very clean and coherent narrative around why one Dream and TPS can and should move together and two, why they must happen quickly and now. Which is not to say that obviously I think that people who are stuck in these interminable backlogs don't feel urgency as well. Um, but there's a coherent storyline to that piece of legislation. Now, having said that, I think everyone is going into that legislative effort with their eyes wide open. That it's not like Senator McConnell, once it goes over the Senate, will take up that bill in the next two weeks and bring it to the floor for a vote. Um, and so if there becomes a policy window when that legislation might be considered in the Senate, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see, obviously, what the magic formula is that allows that to be unlocked, um, what combination of pressure in the form of advocacy and sweeteners in the form of, uh, you know, other members and other senators deciding what they need in order to get the thing uh, to go. And so then I think that we can sort of see what, what ends up in that. But for the most part, basically, I think our ask, at least, is that there be a, a clean, quick uh, uh, movement uh, on the DREAM and TPS legislation, uh, because these are populations that 
um, really do stand uh, in the near future, uh, depending on what the courts end up doing, to lose their ability to remain lawfully in this country. Uh, and in, in the case of you know hundreds of thousands of TPS recipients, these are folks who have been living and working lawfully in the country for going on 20 years now. And just going back to the to the HR you know 392 issue, um, I think it was up to th- like over 300 sponsors. So folks are always asking me, well, a whether it's going to pass, and then b if it has so many sponsors, why doesn't it pass? What would you tell individuals um, in terms of? It seems to have you know lots of bipartisan support. Why isn't it moving through? Is it just a matter of it, it can't be tucked into a, a part of a larger bill, or what, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, so I mean, I, I confess I haven't done any lobbying or advocacy around that bill since leaving the Hill. And when I was on the Hill, I certainly was familiar with it and involved in it. But it didn't have the same universal support then that it has now. I mean, it's been really, really growing. And so I guess one thing I would say is I actually don't know that the answer is that it can't be tucked into something. I think Immigration Voice obviously has been working really hard on educating members of Congress about the bill. Um, and so it may well be the case that I wouldn't want to opine on why they can't do it if, in fact, it's possible. Um, it might be possible. You know, in general, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there is so much support for it in the House, immigration is just always viewed as something that is very complicated to get across the finish line. Um, and that's certainly been the way, you know, that was certainly the way for the seven plus years when I was on the Hill, and it's, it's you know, continued to be the case for the last three years. You know, and also, I'd like, you know, the actually, one thing I'd actually add also is it's not as though the bill also is without its, um, its opponents, too. Um, you know, you all may have seen that there was a recent debate uh, that I think McClatchy, I think, uh, organized online. It was like an online live stream debate uh, with Leon Fresco, who I think oh, is the yeah. general counsel for Immigration Voice uh, through his law firm, um, yeah. and Jessica Vaughn from the Center for Immigration Studies. Um, and they had a debate around the bill, and Jessica Vaughn was taking the anti-position. I mean, the Center for Immigration Studies is, um, as much as I think their arguments are, are, are frivolous and their background is transparently anti-immigrant, um, yep. quite influential on the Hill. Um, and so I think that's a question now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've been telling individuals that um, I think that the longer that particular bill is out there, I've been seeing, you know, it, it gained more um, support against it. You know, I think p- as people start to pay attention to it a little more, uh, there's more voices against it. So it's... it's uh, Evidenced by that that recent um, online debate, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. Um, so we wanted to shift topics a little bit and talk about the the migrant caravan. So we were talking before in terms of our our listeners and like the folks who 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 we work with mainly, and it's you know mostly highly skilled workers on on H one Bs, you know, in the green car backlog, uh, a lot of tech workers. Um, so I don't know if you could give like a kind of a basic overview of what the what the caravan is right now. Um, I know it's been in the news a lot, but um, maybe just kind of what it is, and then the recent development. Uh, I believe as of yesterday or, or last night, with regards to um, you know applying for asylum. And this morning, actually, yeah, yeah. You know, essentially the the caravan. I mean, there you know there's sort of you know potentially sort of multiple different caravans. This is not the first caravan. Uh, that has been sort of identified this year. There was one earlier in the spring. But basically, this is several thousand people, uh, mostly from Honduras, um, the majority of whom are mothers and children, 
who are traveling through Mexico. They were recently in Mexico City and have just just this morning, I think, um, taken off some by bus, some some by foot, to head toward Tijuana, where the plan is, I think, for individuals to probably for the most part uh, request asylum. You know, I think you know maybe your listeners know. I don't know the level of violence in Honduras uh, as well as in Guatemala and El Salvador in the last five or so years has been uh, really astronomical. You know, the countries rank at or near the very, very top of global homicide rankings um, in non-conflict areas. The dangers are particularly high. The femicide rates, the rates of, of homicide against women and girls, you know, are like one, two, and four globally. So there's a huge amount of violence uh, that is driving many of these families to flee uh, Honduras, but the other, you know, those two country, countries as well. There's also in some regions of different countries in Guatemala is, you know, some really extreme poverty. Um, so there, I mean, there's, there's some really, really serious factors that are driving this migration forward. Um, and that's important because when you hear the administration complain about how many more uh, credible fear requests there are at the southwest border than there were in 1996 when Congress passed the law creating the credible fear process, um, and when they complain about the the families with children and the increased number of women who are coming, um, expressing fear as compared to the single adult uh, working age males from Mexico who were coming in the late 90s and you know, throughout the 2000s, um, they point to those those data points and they say, well, that's just fraud. Um, but there are actual global events that are taking place that can help uh, inform why you're seeing the populations change. Right? We're seeing a, a, a decrease in single adult males from Mexico in large part because the economy in Mexico has been improving, the job prospects are improving. Uh, demographically, uh, there was there was sort of a surge of, of, of younger working age males uh, 10, 15 years ago that has begun to change in Mexico. Whereas today, again, like I said, these factors are really changing the demographics of who is coming to the United States. Um, and one of the reason why one reason why you see these people traveling as part of a caravan, um, you know, which is sort of you know traveling in a caravan, but that means basically it's just a, a largest group of people basically who are for the most part walking or hitching rides on trucks or trains, um, coming relatively, you know, sort of in a relatively coordinated or organized fashion, is because so much of the migration route through through Mexico and up to and across the U.S. Mexico border. Uh, is controlled by smuggling organizations uh, and drug cartels that both charge a lot of money for the trip and also can be uh, extremely abusive to people who are uh, traveling with them. And so by individuals banding together and coming together, that can often provide a greater level of safety, especially when the people who are coming uh, are themselves overwhelmingly women and children uh, and young girls, and especially when they are themselves fleeing you know, what in many cases, you know, is an extreme level of violence against women and girls um, in their home countries. So that's sort of the background on kind of what the caravan is. Uh, they're still traveling through Mexico. They're just leaving Mexico City. I think it's still probably a matter of, you know, a number of weeks, I would think, until we start to see any appreciable number, number of individuals, new individuals that are part of this caravan actually coming to the U.S.-Mexico border to request protection. And then what was the development, you know, in the past 24 hours in terms of, I guess, banning these folks' ability to apply for asylum at the at the port of entry oh, yeah. so it's a two-part process um, the government uh, formally today this morning published an interim final rule and then shortly thereafter the president issued a proclamation so I, I think the best way to explain it is under the immigration nationality act uh, section 212f the president has the authority to uh, deny entry or to set conditions on the entry 
of any uh, person or class of persons um, whose entry into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the country. That's the same statutory authority the president used to impose the Muslim ban uh, one, two, and version three. Um, you know, essentially, and there he did sort of countrywide, in the first case at least, said countrywide uh, bans, uh, as well as a complete shutdown of refugee admissions um, in the first two versions. Um, so this time, what the proclamation says, what the president signed today basically, it says that any person uh, who enters the United States between the ports of entry um, is that their entry into the United States would be detrimental to the United States and that they will therefore, one condition upon their entry between those ports of entry is that they would not be permitted to apply for asylum. And then what the interim final rule that was issued says basically is that any person who is subject to uh, that proclamation basically um, is not able to apply for asylum between the ports of entry. Now the trouble, so I mean, as a practical matter, here's what that means. What that means basically is if you're coming to this country and you wanna apply for asylum, uh, what they want you to do is go to the ports of entry and once you get in, say, I need asylum. Um, that's all well and good, um, except that for the last two years, and even going back to a lesser degree uh, during the Obama administration, but it was still, certainly still happening occasionally, um, uh, the Customs and Border Protection officers at those ports of entry are just doing something called metering, which basically means that they are not, it's not just like open, open for business where you can just walk up and say, I need to request protection from asylum. They're actually waiting at the international border crossing point and they're essentially asking you what you're there for. And if you're there to request asylum, they're saying, you can't take one step further. You've got to go back to Mexico. And when we've got space for you, we'll let you know. And so you have large groups of people who have been spending days or weeks sleeping out in the open. Um, on the streets, basically, waiting for the federal government to allow, you know, one, two, three, four people in per day in some places um, to make their claim for asylum. So that's the reality of what's happening. Right? People are being told they can't apply for asylum between the ports of entry. They must go to the ports of entry. When they go to the ports of entry, they're being told they cannot get in, and they may have to wait days, they may have to wait weeks, and if they really direct all traffic to the ports of entry, they may well have to wait months. Um, and so that's, that's how we are effectively shutting down access to asylum for people who are fleeing the conditions that I just described a minute ago. I guess the question is, is this, is this legal from a, an international law perspective, if, if, you, <laughs> if you have the ability to weigh in on that? So I don't think it's legal from a domestic law perspective. Um, and the ACLU actually just 20 minutes ago filed, filed a lawsuit. Um, I don't think it's legal because of this. Um, there are probably a lot of reasons, but I mean, one of which may well be that the acting attorney general who promulgated the rule um, is uh, totally uh, unauthorized to be the attorney general um, after the firing of, of, uh, of Jeff Sessions. Um, but that's beyond my pay grade. Um, I think the reason why it's not lawful is because, so under our Immigration Nationality Act, we say any person, we specifically say any person can apply for asylum when they enter the country, whether or not at a port of entry, whether or not at a port of arrival, right? So the law is very explicit. Um, you can apply for asylum if you enter between the ports of entry. It then says uh, a little bit later in that same section of the same statute, same section of the statute, that there are a few different circumstances in which there are statutory bars to being granted asylum based on like terrorist grounds or criminal grounds or if you've been firmly resettled in another country. And then they say, by regulation, the attorney general can prescribe other 
conditions upon the grant of, of asylum. So that's fine. The Attorney General can prescribe other conditions on the grant of asylum. But as a matter of statutory construction, those other conditions that they would impose should should be of the same kind as the ones that are in the statute itself. And a ban on all people who enter between the ports of entry isn't of the same kind as saying if you've got certain kinds of criminal conduct or you're a danger of national security, you can't get asylum. It's 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 a much more much wider, different sort of category of denial. Also, it's directly in conflict with the express will of Congress in Section 208A1 of the statute. In that exact same section, that section says, and it couldn't be more clear, you can apply for asylum whether you're applying at a port of entry or anywhere else, basically, after entering. And so carving out a whole category by regulation essentially puts the administrative branch over the legislative branch, and that's just not how the Administrative uh, Procedure Act works. So that's going to be a problem for them. I think there are also are, are, are other problems. I mean, one of the things they, they, they claim to be solving here, or they think solve, solves their problem, is that while they're not going to allow people who enter between the ports of entry to apply for asylum, they'll still be able to apply for other forms of humanitarian protection, they say. And those are called withholding of removal or protection of the Convention Against Torture. Here's the problem with that argument. Back in 1996, when Congress first passed the law that created expedited removal, it first created the process to deport people who were apprehended by Border Patrol without going through a court process in a very quick fashion, Congress specifically wanted to make sure they didn't run afoul of U.S. or international law and risk returning people to face persecution abroad. And so at that same time, Congress created the credible fear process, which said, if you're apprehended by Border Patrol and you express a fear of returning, we're going to do a screening to see whether we're in danger of expeditiously and without any judicial review deporting you to face persecution abroad. And Congress specifically and intentionally kept that standard for credible fear below the well-founded fear standard, which is what you have to prove at the end of the process in order to get asylum, right? They weren't trying to decide who had valid asylum claims. They were trying to decide who very clearly had, had frivolous asylum claims and would never meet that standard. That's why it should be easier to get through credible fear, even if you then have a tougher time meeting the higher standard of well-founded fear. What they've done by carving out your ability to apply for asylum for this entire class of people, depending on where they enter the country, is say that the only form of relief they're able to get is a form of relief that you can only get access to if you demonstrate what's called a reasonable fear of persecution. The reasonable fear standard is the same as the wealth on the fear standard. And then that helps you unlock the ability to get these other forms of relief, which requires still another, a higher form of, of proof. So basically, when Congress in 1996 created expedited removal, created credible fear, they recognized that it's unreasonable to ask people to prove their asylum case up front. Um, and so they have to have an easier threshold in order to give them a chance to prove that later on. But the standard that was too hard for people to prove up front in 1996, what Congress appreciated then, is now the exact standard they want everyone to be able to prove up front today. That's not going to stick. That's not going to hold in the courts. I was curious, Tom, what kind of impact do you think today's decision or what came out of the White House is going to have on the current caravan of migrants that are coming in? That's a great question. Um, 
I mean, I don't know how close they're following the news, to be honest. I think that the the idea that that, that people are, are following the president's Twitter feed and are going to respond to what he's doing um, is unreasonable. I also think that at CAP, we actually produced two studies um, in the last few months or so demonstrating that neither family separation, which was the government's intentional policy to take thousands of children away from their parents, right. nor family detention, uh, which began under the began in earnest, basically in large scale under the Obama administration, but this administration has promised to increase it uh, dramatically. Neither family separation nor family detention have actually uh, had a, a a a deterrent effect on people coming to the country. Um, and so, and that you know that makes sense, frankly. I mean, again, you know, one of the one of the lines that came out, one of the things that that we that we learned. I remember when I was on the on, on judiciary committee. We had uh, a Catholic bishop was testifying about a mission that he did um, down in uh, the Northern Triangle countries of Central America, and he was reflecting upon something that someone said to him at one of the reception centers where people were being deported to, I think it was Guatemala, from Mexico. And he talked to a mother and said, you know, you know all the dangers that your child's going to go through during this journey. Why would you send your child on this journey if you know the, the grave risk of you know, being being tortured, being raped, being maimed, being killed. Um, and the mother said, better that my child die on the journey than die on my doorstep at home. So when that's the choice that parents are making, sending their children, or the parents are making when they decide to go with their children, um, it's no surprise that, that you know, some something that this administration or, or the past administration, frankly, did to try to deter people from coming won't be that effective. Um, I also think, frankly, uh, yeah, I would predict that in the next 24 hours, uh, we'll probably see a, a temporary injunction, preliminary injunction put in place that halts uh, implementation of this, and that'll probably stand for a few months while the case works its way through the courts. That's just a guess. Um, but as another matter, I'll say, let's just take the hypothetical. Let's just say there's no injunction, and that this goes into effect. What impact will it have? I think it's going to have a really, really dangerous impact. I don't actually think it's going to stop people from coming to the United States because, again, I think people are, are in many cases, not all, but in many cases are fleeing, um, you know, very terrible circumstances, some of which will make them qualify for asylum, some of which won't, but they're, frankly, from their perspective, no less terrible in their lives. Um, and uh, and what this basically says is you've got to go to a port of entry. So let's just assume for a minute folks do go to a port of entry, and then they're told they can't get in. And they start waiting for days and waiting for weeks and waiting for months. And they start hearing stories about the next but the, you know, the person they meet who's been waiting for three weeks already. Um, people, people will, as they did, you know, crossing into the Mexican, into Mexico itself, go around the ports and will try to go through, uh, you know, between the ports of entry. Um, but because we've now made relief less available to people who cross between the ports of entry, because there's no longer a way for them to subject themselves to a meaningful uh, uh, you know, a meaningful process that will afford them uh, a fair shot at protection if they're apprehended. I think they'll probably take riskier uh, journeys. I think they'll probably go, uh, they'll probably pay more money to cartels to help smuggle them through more challenging areas where they'll face greater risks. And I think, frankly, as we've seen in the past, we'll probably see an increase in the number of people who are dying uh, during the journey, right? People who are trying to go through the desert, people who are trying to go in large tractor trailers um, where they don't have access to sufficient food or oxygen uh, that are crossing through the ports of entry. I worry that desperation is going to breed, you know, even more dangerous crossings. And that's going to be something that, that will happen. And frankly, it's something that we probably, you know, won't learn about um, 
in full ever, uh, or even in part, uh, you know, in real time. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if we can just pivot slightly and talk a little bit about the birthright citizenship. Do you think the president has the right to revoke birthright citizenship? I don't think anyone thinks the president has the right to revoke birthright citizenship. Um, I mean, there are a very small number of constitutional scholars who think that Congress could pass legislation that would uh, circumscribe uh, birthright citizenship under the under the citizenship clause of the Fourth Amendment. Um, but there's basically no one other than Michael Anton, who was a, a totally radical America First advisor of the president early on, who I don't even know if he's a lawyer, who posited this idea in a USA Today article. And that has basically, I think, probably guided the president's decision on this. But no, I don't think the president has the authority legally to do this through executive order, and I also don't think he has the authority to do this by legislation. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law and our Instagram underscore EIG law to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.